If you have your copy of God's Word, and I hope that you do, I want you to find the book of 1 Corinthians. And when you find the book of 1 Corinthians, I'd like for you to find 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Whether you have a printed copy as I prefer and encourage you to bring to church, or you have an app, a device, an app on your device, I want you to find 1 Corinthians chapter 2. And I want you to find, beginning in verse 11, down through verse 13. For those of you who are guests of ours, we're walking through the Word of God in the book of 1 Corinthians. This is the preaching ministry of Church at the Mill. We walk through books of the Bible verse by verse almost exclusively. At times, we will pause and do a series, as we will in a few weeks, in and around the Easter theme. But we're in the book of 1 Corinthians, and we're walking through it verse by verse, line by line, word by word, because we believe that's the best way to milk God's word of all of its nutrients for you and for me. And within our greater story of the first letter Paul wrote to the Corinthian believers as given to us in the Scriptures is a series entitled The Wisdom of God. You may have noticed the series graphic over the last few weeks is the title, of course, The Wisdom of God, and in the background, you see the silhouette of none other than a dove. And the reason for that is because, biblically speaking, the animal that represents the Spirit of God is a dove. The reason for this, of course, is what is written about Jesus on the day he was baptized. We celebrated baptism this morning in both of our services. It is a meaningful thing for children and for adults. It is a good and great thing for the church to be encouraged by the living example of the bearing of the old and the resurrecting of a new. I don't know any Christian that's not encouraged by watching, witnessing, and being a part of baptism. And of course, we know that the scripture records that the day Jesus was baptized, The writer says, and the Spirit of God descended on him like a dove. And a voice from heaven said, this is my son with whom I am well pleased. And since that time, the Spirit of God artistically has been associated with, of course, one of the more beautiful birds, a dove. When we think about the wisdom of God, what is the relationship between the wisdom of God in your life and the Spirit of God we just sang about? It has everything to do with discovering the unknown. Some of you have studied this in depth. Most of you have seen it depicted in cinematography. But in 1912, a massive ship by the name of Titanic sank in the northern Atlantic Ocean. Its sinking, of course, has become a part of pop culture. There have been movies made of it. There are novels that depict it. It has been featured on all kinds of different documentaries. And the interesting thing about the day the Titanic sank is that the world knew due to the logs kept by the ship's captain and those men who served under him the approximate location. In fact, a distress call was sent out and another ship came and rescued some of the survivors. There were well over 2,400 passengers and 1,500 ended up dying. It is the deadliest sinking of a ship in peacetime in history. There have been other ships sank in war where that many casualties were recorded, but in peacetime, It is the deadliest sinking even today. 1,500 or more people 
plunged to an icy grave. Of course, immediately there was interest in locating the ship, the wreckage. There's just one problem. Where it sank is not the Bahamas. It's not the Gulf. It's the northern Atlantic, and the sea there is over 12,000 feet deep. Now, I ran a surveying crew for several summers in high school and college. I can tell you there are 5,280 feet in a mile. So you do the math. This ship sank two miles underwater. The pressure alone means that a human being, even with the help of diving apparatus, could not survive. And then something was developed. They named it Argo. Argo, underwater, unmanned submarine that would send back video images from the seafloor to the ship. And believe it or not, in September of 1985, Titanic was discovered. They say that initially they saw debris, but then as the Argo unmanned submarine made its way along the seafloor, it came upon that eerie picture that you have seen so often, the bow of this great supposedly unsinkable ship. Now, the interesting thing about it, the world knew it was there. It did not disappear into thin air. They knew where it was, but it lies so deep in such darkness, no one could access the wreckage. No one could document the facts that we know today, like the hull of the boat actually came into and landed thousands of feet apart. No one could see that the sheer force of the speed of the ship sinking due to iron and steel crushed most of it when it hit the sea floor. No one could find the artifacts as small as dinner forks and as large as the massive boilers that made up the engine of this steamliner. No one could see them, touch them, salvage them, study them, document them, or make documentaries about them until Argo went where no man could go. What if I told you some discouraging news as long as I promised to follow it with some encouraging news. Here's the discouraging news. You got no shot on your own at the wisdom of God in your life. I, I don't mean that to be brunt or crass or insensitive, but on your own, you nor your pastor has any shot at knowing and living our life according to the wisdom of God on our own. I know it exists because I believe in the Lord. Do you? You are a people of faith. Some of you may come with deep questions. I'm always encouraged when I meet someone who attends one of our services as an agnostic or an atheist. Those individuals are always welcome here. You may be here with a friend and have serious questions of the existence of God. I'll welcome you in this place. I'm glad that you're here. If you'll humble yourself and listen long enough, 
I promise you, he will make himself known to you. But the vast majority of the precious ears I speak to this morning are people who would say, I am a woman of faith. I am a man of faith. I believe in God, more specifically, the Lord God of heaven, more specifically, the Lord Jesus Christ risen from the grave as recorded in the Holy Scriptures. This is my audience. This is my crowd. And because of that, this is what I know about you and me. We know God is wise, and therefore we know the wisdom of God exists. But the wisdom of God known is not the wisdom of God experienced. The wisdom of God revered and respected is not the wisdom of God lived and applied. In other words, the depths of the wisdom of God is so unreachable to us that there is no hope for us to ever have it, much less live by it, were it not for our own Argo, our own go-between. Something coming from God to us, in us, through us, for us, to empower us. And that, of course, is the purpose and the role and the identity of the Holy Spirit. And so I'd like very briefly to preach to you a simple message called the Spirit of Wisdom. For those of you who've been following along, Paul has made no reservations condemning the world's wisdom. But along about chapter 2, he begins to say, wisdom in and of itself is not the enemy. In fact, God is pro-wisdom as long as it's his wisdom. The half-brother of Jesus, James, wrote these words in the book of James. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. One simple verse teaches us immediately some truths. Number one, God's not stingy with it. He wants to give it away. Number two, God's the one who has it. And number three, I'm the one who is often lacking for it. And so God is not anti-wisdom. God is not interested in you and I being dumb robots who have no passions and desires, who have no individual personalities. God wants us in the uniqueness and the individuality of our created being to experience the full measure of his wisdom. And so Paul, having dealt with worldly wisdom, says, let me explain the reality of a Christian. And it is that reality that we begin to see unfold in verse 10, the last verse of last week's passage, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 10. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit, notice the capital S, for the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. And now we have our passage this morning. Look what he says. For who knows a person's thoughts except the Spirit of that person which is in him. So also, no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God, verse 12. Now, we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God. Why? Second phrase, verse 12. That we might understand the things freely given us by God, for what reason? And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. 
So in other words, to make the connection between the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, and the real life application of God's wisdom in your life, Paul unpacks four realities to understand. I want to give those to you very quickly. It's a four-part journey, if you will. Part one, it's important to understand a simple spiritual comparison. What do you say to somebody who comes into your life and you care about them and they look worried but their mouth shut? Do you ignore it? Not if you care about them. If I stop today at a gas station and fill up my vehicle, go in and get my extra large unsweet tea, I have to look at the sweet tea, but I can't partake in it anymore. And I walk by somebody who looks worried. I may or may not have pause to even stop because I don't know them. In fact, it might seem rude to infringe upon their privacy to walk up to a perfect stranger. But if I know somebody, if I love somebody, if somebody I live with looks worried or struggled, I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to do what you're going to do. I'm going to say, hey, what's on your mind? Hey, you look a little worried. What are you thinking about? You ever have somebody ask you what you're thinking about? It always fascinates me that there are people in this world that go, nothing. I have tried to think about nothing. I cannot think about nothing. There are some of you that can. Some of you are like, Pastor, honestly, there's just not a lot going on. I just want to stare. <laughs> I'm always thinking about something. Now, a lot of times it's senseless. It may be locked somewhere between seventh grade humor and a low level of intellect, but, but I'm thinking about something. I'm always thinking about something. But there are people that go, nothing, I'm, I'm not thinking about anything. God bless you if that's you. I don't have the ability to do that. But when you know somebody, when you care about somebody, maybe when you're falling in love with somebody, you go, what's on your mind? What are you thinking about? When somebody's hurting, you say, why is it do you look discouraged? I see it in your eyes. Or you look like you have a question. Is there something you want to ask me? This is common courtesy. Now, I don't want to be too elementary. I'm, I'm not trying to be simplistic, although sometimes we run past that and we ought not to. Why do we have to ask that question? Because I don't know what's going on in your mind. I don't know what's going on in your heart. I make this joke often with you all. This is one of the greatest messages for husbands. Just look at her and say, oh, no. Would you just tell me? Wives, if you love your husband, get a dry erase board. Walk him through it. Step one, step two, step three. We're not the superior gender. We need your help. We're challenged intellectually. Just tell me how I'm supposed to feel about it, and I'll feel that way, baby, if you'll feel better. <laughs> tell me what you want me to do, because when I try to solve the problem, you say, I'm just trying to solve the problem. You don't want me to solve the problem? Write that down. Do not solve the problem. Because I'm wired to solve the problem. In all honesty, all joking aside, when we genuinely care about somebody, we ask for them to reveal what is not known because it lives within them. This is a very simple truth about human relationships. And Paul says it's obvious. Look at verse 11. He says in verse 11, For who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit, notice it's a lowercase s, the spirit of that person. He's talking about their emotional seat, their soul, their being, that which is not biological, that which is emotional and spiritual. Who knows that except that person? There are only two people in this room that know you inside and out, 
the Lord who made you, and yourself. To the degree to which the rest of us know you is based on what you reveal to us through time with you, observing your behavior, and listening to the words that you speak. In fact, how beautiful it is to have your soul cared for by a friend, a loved one, a spouse, maybe a brother or sister in your small group, where you are heavy-hearted, you are dealing with something that is dark and discouraging, and they don't try to fix you or solve your problem, but they let you share your heart. The catharsis of unpacking your feelings and telling them how you are dealing with it personally, intimately, privately, and emotionally just means something. In fact, all of you at times, perhaps with a tear in your eye, have looked at a brother or sister and said, listen, I know that took a while, but just th- thank you for listening. I, I, I appreciate your ear. I appreciate you letting me reveal to you an inner part of me that is not known by a passerby, by a casual onlooker. Paul grabs that idea of human relationship and he says, who really knows what's going on in a human being except that human being? And then he does something really cool. He said, and guess what? The God who made you is no different. Now it's very important. Paul is not saying God is like us. He's saying we are like God. And, of course, we know that because we're made in his image, which is why the second phrase of verse 11 reads this way. For who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person which is in him? It's a rhetorical question. You see the question mark in a modern translation. So also, no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. But notice he switched from a lowercase s to a capital S. And the reason is, is that Paul is referring specifically to the third person of the Trinity. God, the Holy Spirit. He's saying, just as you have a seat of emotion, just as you have an emotional and spiritual soul that is not on display for the rest of the world, just as you are in a place where some of what you have and know is private and intimate, God's the same way. God has an emotional seat. God has a mind. God has a heart and desires. Why do I know this? Because we're made in his image. And guess what he gave you? A heart, a mind, desires, an emotional seat. Now, unlike you and I, God's personhood is not corrupted by sin. But it doesn't mean he doesn't have desires and passions and wants and wills. Read your Bible. The Bible is full of the Lord expressing who he is to us. And Paul says the person of who God is inwardly is the person of the Holy Spirit. When we think about God in the flesh, whom should we think about? Well, the Lord Jesus Christ, who exists in the flesh even today. Today, if you meet the Lord, you will see him in all of his glory in a real, physical, bodily, resurrected state. He will still bear the scars on his feet and his hands and his side. You will see him as the apostles saw him at his ascension. He is the risen bodily Lord Jesus Christ. He's not here anymore. And therefore, his presence on earth is not through his flesh, which came through Mary's womb, went to the cross, vacated the tomb, and ascended to a throne. His presence now is within the flesh and blood of his followers, which is why the church is called the body of Christ. So Paul says there's a comparison here. 
God has made us like him and his wisdom, the inward desires of our great king, his passions, his will, they live within him. Which leads to the second part. There's a spiritual contrast between that and the spirit of the world. Look at verse 12. Paul continues this simple argument. Now, we, he's talking to the church, we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God. Now, this is something that Paul keeps pounding. We've not been given the spirit of the world. We don't preach in the spirit of the world. We don't operate in the spirit of the world. Now, why? Context matters. What was splitting the Corinthian church up? It was people using Christian words to baptize their worldly desires and create factions within the church based on their allegiance to particular teachers or particular ideas that seemed to be cloaked in the most beautiful speech, the most eloquent wisdom. The rhetoric that moved them emotionally was the one winning the throne of their heart. And Paul shows up in this letter and says, no, No, this is not about manipulation. This is not about emotionalism. This is not about appealing to the human rationale or offering some deep-seated philosophical argument for you to find the purpose of your life within yourself. No, no, no. In fact, multiple times does he deny outright the spirit of the world. In fact, if you look in your Bible, if you have your Bible open in the book of 1 Corinthians, if you were to flip one page back or scroll up on your Uh, app, you'll notice this in verse 17 of chapter 1. In verse 17 of chapter 1, Paul takes aim at this huge human wisdom, this wisdom of the world. He says, for Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and notice, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its Power. The first verse of chapter 2, we dealt with just a few weeks ago. Paul says, And when I came to you, brothers, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, lowercase w, the wisdom of the world. Look at the fourth verse of chapter 2, three verses down. And my speech and my message were not implausible words of wisdom. So Paul is going out of his way multiple times saying, My ministry to you, the gospel message, is not found in the wisdom of the world. It's not there, which is why verse 12 says this in our passage today. Now, we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God. And thinking about this spirit of the world, this worldly wisdom, Think about how Paul describes the Ephesian believers before they got saved. He says, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins. I think most of us grasp that. We understand that just as baptism represents the bearing of an old and the raising to life of a new, that without Christ we are dead in our sins. But he goes on to unpack what that looks like in the second verse of Ephesians chapter 2. In which you once walked. In other words, this is how you made your decisions. This is how you thought about your words. This is how you married the value of your relationships. And once you walk, once walk, following the course of this world, following 
The prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Notice the progression, which if we're being honest, is really a digression. You lived a certain way. Whether or not you realized it, you followed the course of the world. And whether or not the world realized it, the world was following the prince of the power of the air. And the prince of the power of the air, of course, is the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. It's this sin cycle, and this is how it works. You see this all around us today. Watch the morality of our world continue to have to evolve and reinvent itself because there is no more to tie off to. There's no foundation to build on. It all becomes relative. And this is why Paul is trying to say, now this spirit I'm about to tell you about, it is not the spirit of the world. And by the way, you didn't earn it. It was given to you. That's what verse 12 says. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God. One of the commentators that I enjoy reading so much offered, I thought, one of the better descriptions of the spirit of the world and the wisdom of the world. We say that the spirit of the world is the spirit that makes the world secular. From the time Adam and Eve fell into sin, the spirit of this world has revealed itself in opposition to God's spirit. For example, in the lawlessness prior to the flood, the building of the Tower of Babel, in the church, false teachers who sought to destroy the church in apostolic days. First Corinthians is a perfect example. These two commentators, Kistemacher and Henderson, going to say, it is the spirit that rules a person in whom God's spirit does not live. So, so notice, when someone does not have the spirit of God, the spirit of the world automatically rules. It's, it's not that they make a decision to follow the spirit of the world. The decision is made once we're born. It is a power that determines all the thinking and doing of men which places itself over against the spirit who is from God. Now, how does this manifest itself? Notice the discussion in our modern day about personal autonomy. Personal autonomy has become the new God of this age. If you determine yourself to be happier living this way, loving that person, being that gender, because you have determined that that makes you happy, you then declare it to be true and demand the rest of the world submit to what you have declared to be true, which is so obviously not true. I mean, when we think about the discussion of gender, when we think about the rights of the unborn, when we think about the clear deviation for God's incredible gift of romance and intimacy from one man and one woman in covenant marriage, when we watch these deviations, these redefinitions, this revisiting and reestablishing new norms, what you find at the center of this is not the God of the Bible, it's the God of the human heart. Personal autonomy becomes the altar with which we bow before. And the problem with this is that the Bible clearly teaches that that is the spirit of the world and that is the wisdom of the world. Now, in the ancient world, that they were fascinated with spirituality and not so much physical life. In fact, some people have said it this way. In Corinth, it was all mythology. The spirit matters and the flesh does not. Let me, let me show you how that manifests itself in Corinth. When we get a few pages over after Easter, you're going to be shocked by what some of these church folk were supposedly doing. I mean, th this is a difficult book to read. 
There is some tremendously illicit sin going on in the church. And why could that be? Well, it goes something like this. As long as I'm right with God in myself, I can do what I want to in my body. So if I declare myself to be right with God, I can sleep with who I want to. That doesn't sound like Corinth. That sounds like America. It still goes on today. If you can separate your spiritual life from your physical life, you become the God of your physical life because you've determined your spiritual life is intact without repentance being in your heart. Now, the modern world kind of rejects mythology but loves biology. It does the opposite. The modern world says, no, we're not spiritual. We're just highly evolved apes. So whatever makes you happy must be fine because your flesh will rule the day. The gospel says no. The gospel says God redeems your whole self. And he declares your spirit righteous. And then he gives you the strength to let your body follow in obedience on this side of heaven, living out what he's declared you to be, hoping in the hope that one day you'll be delivered from sin, not because your performance earns the love of God, but because he declared you to be righteous. And all of a sudden, we see two completely different worldviews, which is why this spiritual contrast is really shown to us at the end of the verse. Look what happens in verse 12. Now, we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. Third reality, it's important to understand how spiritual comprehension works. I doubt I've said anything you would disagree with, but what does it mean to literally Live by the Spirit. That's what he says. He says in verse 13, I'll read it again, or verse 12, that we might understand the things freely given to us by God. Now, how does this work? How do we understand the will of God in our lives? Listen to me. If you are struggling to lock in, give me the next five minutes. Some of your life Some of you will have your life changed if you'll get this. Just before Jesus was arrested, this is what he said at the end of his life in the book of John. He said, and I will ask the Father, he's talking to the disciples, and he will give you another helper. Notice the capital H, it's because it's a translation of a Greek word that's pronounced paraclete. It means one who comes alongside. So Jesus is saying, I'm leaving, but I'm going to send another A helper. This is one of those reasons we distinguish the Son from the Spirit. They are together in oneness, but they have very distinct personhoods. To be with you forever. Jesus was not with the disciples forever in the flesh. In fact, he was only here about 33 years. He has not returned. He's going to come back, and one of the joys of heaven is being able to see him in the flesh. But I have not seen him him yet, and I will not see him until I die or until he returns. But this helper will be with you forever, even the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive. Does God hate the world? No. The Bible says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. The Bible says that God wishes that no man perish, but that all have eternal life. God is not being stingy of the Holy Spirit. 
Why can the world not receive the Holy Spirit? Here's why. Where is the only place God can dwell? God only dwells in perfection, in holiness, in righteousness. God will not taint his perfection by associating with that which is sinful. God loves sinners, but he will not be intimately connected with any person or anything that is sinful. There go, canceling out his claim at purity and holiness. Well, if God loves sinners so much and sinners are so unapproachable by God, then only by God's grace can he make sinners right. And where is the moment where sin is paid for? It's called the cross of Christ. Oh, wait a minute. Now I see what Paul's saying when he says, the wisdom of God is the cross of Christ. Because the world thinks it's foolish, and of course it would, for the world does not see its need for forgiveness. But when the Holy Spirit reveals to me the weight of my sin, and then the kindness of God to take it away, the cross represents the greatest symbol of wisdom in my life because it is by means of the cross that I'm declared righteous, which then allows me to have access to the Holy Spirit who cannot live in the world but can live in us, which is why Jesus says, because it is neither sees him nor knows him, but you, if you have Christ in your life, you know him for he dwells with you, and then he goes on to say, and he dwells in you. He's not in your cathedrals or your lit candles. He's in you. Now, now, no sooner has Jesus said this than at the end of this same chapter, he adds, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things. You mean you don't know everything to follow Jesus the day you start to follow Jesus? Nope. You don't know half of what you don't even know the day you choose to follow Jesus, the day you to surrender to his will. He will teach you, and then what will he do? He will bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. How many times have you read a scripture in the morning while you're sucking down coffee trying to put your makeup on? I hope the women only agree with that statement. <laughs> Revisit point number two if there's other issues. How many times have you read your word and you thought, thank you, Lord, appreciate that word you've journaled? Saw no connection. I know you're not supposed to say that, but, but nothing happened. Angels didn't sing, no tears, your journal entries are terrible. And five hours later at work or at school, something hits you. You're faced with a situation, you're in a conversation, and the word you read, or the word you heard on Sunday is exactly what you needed. And in that moment, you think, I brought that right back up. You did not. The Spirit of God takes from the data of your mind his words and regurgitates them. This is why at Church of the Mill, we don't pull up a stool and have a conversation about God for 15 minutes. This is why you're going to have a full-blooded varsity sermon every single week because I want to feed your soul well. I don't care if your stomach's a little hungry. Intermittent fasting wouldn't hurt some of you. I don't care if your stomach's a little bit hungry. 
I want you to walk out of here unable to process all of it today because my dependence is not on you. It's on the fact that come Thursday, the Spirit of God will reach back into your mind what your ears have heard from the communication of his word, and it will give you that nugget of truth, that resolute mind, that word of encouragement, that word of warning, that word of challenge that you need, which is exactly what Jesus promised. In fact, Paul couldn't get past this. Paul compares it to staying in step with the Spirit. He says in Galatians 5, 17, the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh for these opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want. There's a battle going on. If we live by the Spirit, notice, let us also. So in other words, if we were to make an inference into that sentence, if we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit means... I can be made alive by the Spirit of God, and tomorrow I can be out of step with him. Now, I don't believe the Bible would teach I can be out of step with him permanently because if I'm never in step with the Spirit, then the Spirit of God's not ruling, so the Son of God's not reigning. But I can be reigned by the Son of God, saved, redeemed. The mark of the people of the cross is the presence of the Spirit. But in momentary lapses of judgment, I can get out of step with the Spirit. I like to think about it like dancing. I'm not a dancer. Phenomenal dancers usually, though, are gifted athletically. It's one thing to watch a young man or a young woman dance. It's another thing to watch a group of people dance together. Now, I'm not talking about your four-year-old's dance recital. That's the third level of purgatory. I'm talking about professional dancers in perfect unity, the symmetry of their bodies, the movement, the rhythm. It's fascinating. And what you see is the hours of work that they put in to stay in step, motion by motion. It's motion. It's not like watching a football play, which is chaos. It's not like watching a baseball play where people are doing different things. When a group of dancers, when a dance troupe dances together in perfect rhythm, they are in sync with one another. I know you're going to praise God for your lunch in a few minutes. I know you pray for your children on Monday. I know you pray for your husbands and your wives. I know that you go to God and say, God, forgive me for my sins where I failed you. I'm with you. What would happen if every woman in this room prayed this prayer this week? Ladies, lean in. Listen. What if you prayed this prayer? Heavenly Father, today, in every word and in every thought, help me be sensitive to the leading of your spirit so that I am in step with your will for my life as a woman, perhaps as a wife, as a mother, as a leader, as a teacher, as an employee, as an employer, as a witness. Lord, lock me in step with you. Lord, let me be a spiritual dance partner and you take the lead. What would happen if every man in this room said, God, I know what I know and I know whom I believed in and I know he is able to keep that which I have entrusted to him up until that day. I know that, Lord, but today I also know me. And in those moments... I need to check and be in step with you. So before I react, before I speak, even before a thought turns into two and two turns, turns into three, help me to be in check and in step 
with your spirit. Now, I've been telling you this every week during this series. Show me a woman who prays that prayer intensely. Show me a man who prays that prayer purely, with integrity. I'll show you a man who gets called a man of wisdom. You'll see the wisdom of God all over a woman who is sensitive to the Spirit of God because the seat of the wisdom of God lives within the Spirit of God and the Spirit of God lives within the saint of God. And so the more sensitivity we nurture, the more wisdom we display in our decisions. And this is why I would leave you with spiritual communication. It's important not only to understand comprehension, it's important to understand communication. Let me read verse 12 with you again. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given to us by God. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom. This is not an indictment on seminary. Paul's not saying you shouldn't study. In fact, he tells Timothy to study to show thyself approved. He's saying there's a world of people who are good at coming up with nuggets of truth, with keys and principles. Social media has exploded this verse. There are people whose spiritual influence looks wide just because everything they, says is, everything they say is really cool and it translates into a tweet or a post or a meme. When actually, their Instagram stories are superficial because they lack the depth of the Spirit. And the Spirit, according to verse 13, does this. We impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit. Interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. Full disclosure. Some verses are hard to translate from the original language to English. Verse 13 is, there's a healthy debate as to the right verb. Here's some examples. I'll show them to you real quick on the screen. The New King James Version says, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. I grew up on the King James Version. The New American Standard Version says combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual words. The NIV says explaining spiritual realities with spirit-taught words. And, of course, the ESV, the translation I preach from most of the time, says interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. There's just some debate as to the right verb, but there's no debate on the meaning. Spiritual words can only be heard by spiritual ears. Translation. You know that person in your life? that knows the truth and will not repent, and they are a constant source of frustration for you, and you are tempted to give up on them, they cannot repent without the Spirit of God in them. They can hear the truth to their blue in the face. Without the Spirit of God in their life, they do not have the power to overcome their sin, which does not bring discouragement. It gives hope because I know that if they would repent, the Spirit of God can take all of that truth that has been preached to them and apply it to their lives. The same is true in your life and in my life. It's also important that we make sure we're listening to spiritual people when we're lending a spiritual ear for spiritual truth. You say, Pastor, how do we discern that in a world full of quote-unquote spiritual leaders? Well, you know how you're supposed to eat locally? That's a big thing now, eat locally. Make sure you feed on the Word of God locally. In other words, make sure you can watch his life. Make sure you can meet his wife. Make sure the elders of whatever church you attend hold him accountable. M make sure that you can talk with your child small group leader. 
Make sure that you can have a conversation with the people that are teaching God's word to you. I'm not in any way saying we shouldn't take advantage of national and global ministries. I'm so thankful for the gift of technology. But week in and week out, we as the church are designed to receive spiritual nourishment from spiritual people using spiritual words from the spiritually inspired word of God. And when those line up, you know what happens? It's not oohs and ahs. Every sermon in every small group's not necessarily a seismic shift. The fruit is in the wisdom of God that the congregation lives in. It's not the attendance. It's not how many likes on social media. It's does the wisdom of God characterize the congregation that is receiving the word of God. Now, you're not in charge of the congregation. To some degree, I'm not. Because ultimately, all we are are the sum total of individual followers of Jesus. Which leads me to this question. Who rules the day in your heart? Worldly wisdom is wisdom not of God. That's not the threat in a room like this. It may be for some of you. But for most of you, I think you would say, you know, I, I don't want to live by worldly wisdom. The real threat is that superficial wisdom. It looks Christian. It's baptized with Christian language. But all it is is human philosophy wrapped up in verbiage that sounds churchy. But the real wisdom comes from the Lord. It's informed by his word and it's empowered by his spirit. Who's ruling today in your decisions? in the life that you live. Think on these things and seek the sensitivity to the Spirit.